Hey everyone, welcome to Conversation Piece with Patrick Armstrong. I am the titular Patrick, and this is a show where we talk about the missing pieces of the conversations we're already having. Shout out to all our returning listeners, and a high five and hello to everyone joining us for the very first time. Thank you so much. For too long, adoptees have not been the authors of our own stories. That's changing, and this month we're joining the discourse to be part of that change. Together with BIPOC adoptees, we are reclaiming our narratives by honing in on specific areas of the BIPOC adoptee experience that need to be amplified right now. This is a brave space for adoptees to share with the world what we know is needed both inside and outside of our community. These are the BIPOC adoptee conversations. My guest today is a transracial adoptee, actor, writer, poet, advocate, and activist for the rights of British East and Southeast Asians, and a founding member of Beats.org. One of the 106 Hong Kong foundlings brought over to the UK during the 50s and 60s, she is also an advocate for the voices, lived experiences, and expertise of transracial adoptees. It is my honor and privilege to welcome Lucy Sheen to the show. Hey, Lucy, thank you for joining me. Hi. I really appreciate, again, as I said before we hopped on here, you giving me the privilege of your time, your story, and again, your expertise and the work that you've done and what you feel like is missing from this conversation around the BIPOC adoptee experience. And for folks who may not know who you are and who are listening to the show right now, do you mind sharing just a little bit more about yourself? Not at all. Um, I'm, I suppose, uh, I'm, as you said, an actor and a writer. Um, uh, and also now a filmmaker. Um, I came quite late into the whole world of, I suppose, um, what you would call adoption politics, mm. um, quite late on in life. Um, and that just launched me into rethinking about my sort of position in British society not only as being female, but also being a person of colour and also an adoptee, which is kind of sort of strikes me as a double whammy. So, um, and it was from that that it basically influences a lot of uh, the creative work that I'm involved with and interested in, particularly in terms of narratives and where and who gets um, the rights or not to actually tell those 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 narratives. Um, I did do for a short while a bit of, uh, I suppose you'd call training work for um, prospective transracial adoptees. Mm. And I stopped because was it seemed that, that everything was up the wrong way. I was being brought in at a stage where sort of the contracts have been signed and I was telling these people who I'm sure had the best possible motives um, at heart, asking them to think about, do you know the social and, and, and cultural and racial politics of the area that you're bringing this child into? Um, mm. And a look of complete and utter um, fear and, you know, sort of, if you've never actually had to think about where you are placed in society, then it, it, it must come as a shock when you get somebody that looks like me coming in saying, hey, have you thought about this? Right. Um, what plans have you in place to basically um, tutor your child and yourselves in the culture from which they come from so that you can speak to them 
in their native language um, and do that for as long as you deem necessarily for the child. Um, so all of these things, for me, it's a no-brainer. These should all be done before you even get to the stage of looking at paperwork. Mm, so um, true, so true. And I, I think that's that's where I come from, from the advocacy and act activist side and also the you know sort of the uh, I, i'm sure it's the same um across the pond but this idea of experts particularly when it comes to matters of race and culture always seem to me to be um not predominantly um academics who tend to be male white and middle class and over here mm. they're usually oxbridge educated and it's like fine that's fine but what people need to hear, particularly when you're talking about the systems that we cling on to when it comes to childcare and adoption, etc. They are they stem from the 17th century and they haven't really changed. That mentality hasn't really changed. So it's not child-centric. It is about the people who are going to look after those children. Um, and not to not saying that that's not important, but the very nature of, of of looking after the child you know putting a child into care should be about the child the needs and the wants of the child's not the aspirations and the wants and the likes or dislikes of the prospective parents um so i basically gave up that training work because for me it was completely not enough and at the wrong time and uh, sure. far too late you know Totally. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I appreciate it because I think that's going to be really helpful context for this conversation we're about to have. <laughs> and before we get into that, um, I probably should have said this at the top, but you are calling in from the UK. So yes. you're coming in and bringing a little bit of a different experience and perspective to this conversation, um, particularly for this series. And also mentioned that you were one of the 106 Hong Kong foundlings who came to the UK during the 50s and 60s. I was wondering if yeah. you could share a little bit more about that specifically, especially for folks who may not know about that specific group. Um, that came about that particular program, which was uh, imaginatively called the Hong Kong Project, <laughs> uh, was to do with actually uh, trying to find homes for the ever-growing number of uh, foundlings in Hong Kong. Um, and that was off the back of migration post-Second uh, World War and then obviously uh, um, the revolution in mainland China. So, and uh, as, as several kind of like natural um, disaster events in Hong Kong during sort of the late 40s and 50s. So the uh, indigenous orphanages were literally um, bursting at the seams. Um, and the program initially, um, it was thought that they were going to adopt uh, these uh, children, mainly 99.9% .9 of them being girls, to uh, Asian American families. However, it was discovered that uh, the preference for a lot of those families was male children, of which we were not. So mm. um, Hong Kong being a, a British colony, it was then decided that they would try and place uh, as many children as they could uh, with uh, British families, um, which, you know, well, is what it was. You know, we were sort of um, 
catalogued and uh, our photos were disseminated to various, I think, religious uh, Christian um, societies and, and churches to find if there were uh, people who wanted to adopt um, any of these Hong Kong values. Um, and we were scattered to the four winds. So you're talking mm. about the 50s and 60s. So um, in terms of uh, people of, of, of differing colours, I think um, probably was the only sort of colour at that time that was present um, and um, had sort of established themselves um, in terms of coming over from uh, Jamaica and the islands uh, to fill in the positions that none of the indigenous people wanted to work in, i.e. bus conductors and all the rest of that and, uh, and sure. train drivers. Um, so there were quite a few transports where we were literally um, given to uh, um, either the uh, ho hostesses or hostesses were finding passengers who would um, take, literally take a baby on arms wow. and, and, and escort it back to London uh, Airport, which uh, is now known as Heathrow. Um, and we were pick, literally picked up as you would uh, a parcel from our post office um, and went off with our new families. Um, and at the time, you know, sort of, I think apart from the centres like Manchester, Liverpool, um, Swansea, uh, Newcastle, uh, there weren't, you didn't really see that many East Asian, Southeast Asian faces in the general mm. populace. Um, so I grew up in a place where it was pretty well much only me and an Indian restaurant, was mm. it? So, and those, that, I mean, times have changed. Um, and it was very much during that era where was kind of, you know, sort of clean break. So nothing was alluded to. In my case, I can't speak for the other Hong Kong adoptees um, that, you know, sort of you start uh, from scratch. I can laugh at this now, but, you know, sort of at what point did they not, realised that I wouldn't notice that I didn't actually look like my parents or anybody else around. Sure. So, you know, the the, the uh, Chinese elephant in the room, as it were. So, um, <laughs> which is quite funny, which is quite funny now, you know, but at the right. time, obviously, um, it's not. Um, and right. the, the view towards race, particularly in the UK, towards uh, sort of uh, China and, and anybody from East Asia, has always been a very peculiar sort of attitude um, mm. and one that is predominantly negative. Um, so that is sort of uh, um, where I come from. Um, 2008, I was contacted by an organisation that was wanting to do research on uh, these 106 uh, adoptees. Um, and I said, yes, I would sort of join in. And I think I met... 98 out of the 106 oh, wow. Hong Kong adoptees, which was a very weird experience. Because, I was going to ask, what was that like? Well, it, it was very odd in that it's the first time I have seen so many East Asian faces, but with, all, with varying different UK regional accents. Sure. Which you, <laughs> you just don't 
I mean, I know it exists, but you just don't, and culturally in this country, you just don't see that. You just yeah. don't, you know, it's like baby pigeons. We know that they exist, but you never see them, you know. Sure. Um, so that was really odd um, and nice in some senses, but I also found it quite sad in that obviously we came, met, well, we all came into the country pre-internet, pre-mobile phones and all the rest of that. So I guess I think we probably all knew that there were other people like us that existed, but how would you kind of connect with those people? Where right. would you go to to kind of actually find that? Um, so that was kind of like quite sad that we had sort of missed out on on actually being able to find each other. Um, but it, it was uh, an enjoyable but very strange <laughs> sort of a feeling to be in this room with with so many other people that had this one thing in common but then on the other side of that you know which people of color and adoptees get the same thing is that you must know every other single person that looks right. like you if you're korean or if you're Hong Kong, of course you must well know you know sort of and, and that is also something that you're kind of like sort of burdened with as it were you know sort of and as one of the the, the adoptees uh, said to me, she probably has more in common with people who cycle because that's her passion than she does mm. with uh, some of the other, you know, sort of uh, adoptees or translation adoptees. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like a burden is an apt way to describe it because I've had similar situations where it feels like I'm supposed to know all these people and or understand yeah. and know their experience when at the end of the day, like, you have to be able to sit down and have a conversation, multiple conversations before you can really get to that connection. And while in the adoptee community, it is like you meet another adoptee or multiple adoptees and you can feel a lot of resonance. It isn't just like, it doesn't always just click in that way. You got to be able right. to build community. It's not that you, you can mm, find community, absolutely. but there, it's, it's something different to be able to build that. Yeah. Um, together with other folks. Are you still in touch with any of the adoptees that you met? Um, one or two. I mean, I think it's a very odd thing. For me, my obviously one's personal experiences kind of shape how you sort of navigate uh the world of adoption. Mm -hmm. And I find it particularly tricky. Um, and I did come across quite a few that I turned born again adoptees, mm. um, which is, you know, adoption is the greatest thing since sliced bread. They are very much forever family, you know, the fairy tale ending, um, you know, it's, it's transformative, which don't get me wrong, it should be. But my experience and having met other um, adoptees who are willing to speak out, the majority of them, it is not the positive experience that the PR and the, you know, sort of the advertising would have us believe. Right. And I'm not against adoption or transracial adoption, but I'm neither am I for it because mm. I think there are so many things that that we as societies, particularly in the West, need to relook at and to to actually have some quite painful conversations um around sure. That whole sort of, and it is, unfortunately, I think, an industry. A hundred percent. Of sort of, I think, legalized 
trafficking of of, of children, babies, and uh, young adults sometimes. Um, and no one likes to be told that they're doing it wrong or what they've done is in the past is is um, less than admirable. But I think we are in a time when we should be talking about those things because we know a lot more and therefore now we know what we know, we should be putting that into action. And I don't see a lot of that happening in the UK or indeed in, in the States um, from what I, I, I'm aware of. I mean, I totally agree. I think it's, we need to be moving towards accountability. And I think it's really difficult for people to do that, particularly when it comes to adoption. Because like you said, it is, for all intents and purposes, legalized trafficking. When you are paying, when you can literally put a price tag on a person, that is commodification to any degree, in any definition, as you want to put it. And that's hard for people to understand. Because like you said, the propaganda, the advertisements, the way that we've always talked about it, this dominant narrative that overshadows all of this is that it's a happily ever after, that everybody ends up fine and they'll, and the outliers are folks who have a negative experience or something antithetical to what we've always heard is adoption. And that's a problem. Like we And we have to have yeah. those conversations. One of the reasons we're having a conversation right now and why it's important for folks not only within our community, but especially outside of our community to be uh -huh. listening because they have to understand and they have to hear from us. You know, like you said, who are the experts that are talking about this? Like those those older white men who have went to university, who have done a lot of work. That is one thing, but they don't actually have or carry most of them don't have or carry that lived experience of what it means to be no. adopted, particularly transracially, particularly across countries. And we have to be able to share our experiences with that and be validated and taken seriously when we're talking about those things. I mean, I, th I think there's a lot of, there are so many things that are encompassed, particularly in, in, in transracial adoption, to do with um, decolonization of, mm. of the environment. Um, and, you know, then you have that nasty, you know, work for, for better word, race, which we have to kind of like embrace. And yeah. whether it's a human construct or not, we have bought into that hook, line and sinker and we put so much store on that. So yes. if we put so much store on that, then we have to have those hard conversations about what that means, what it does, what, what you know, sort of. What are the tools that you, as parents, you need to have in order to be able to support that child to grow up, to be able to cope with anything that life throws at it? We don't get a manual when you, 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 you have a child, however you get that child um, saying that you do A, B, and C. You learn by your mistakes or from your parents, from your grandparents, if you're lucky to enough to have those, um, and also by what, what goes on around in, in your environment. So all of these things need to be really looked at in terms of, of the transracial adoptee and, and what happens to that child and how that child grows up and how important it is for the child to have that safety of the markers that those who who grow up in in, in uh, natural families, they don't have to fight for that. They don't have to right. think about 
where do I sit on on the social chain and the cultural chain? Um, they can switch on the telly and they see somebody that looks like them and talks like them and you know does the normal things. Whereas you yourself and I, we will switch on the television and more often than not, we will see things that are stereotypes and racial tropes that right. are not us. You know, a hundred percent. So that's really important that we are. We are flipping the script. We are reframing that narrative so that the emphasis is on on the child and it is child-centric. Um, and those things of the life that that child had, it doesn't matter whether it's a month or, or six years, that is still an integral part of that child. Um, and until that child comes into its majority, those are the things that need to be there for them to be able to pull upon. And if when they come 18, 21, they don't want to uh, be involved with that, then that's a decision they make as an adult, having been fully informed throughout their, their formative years. Exactly. And that's something, that's a piece of advice that I try to give prospective adoptive parents or even adoptive parents whenever they ask. Like a question that I get a lot is, how do I make sure that my the adoptee in my life stays connected to their culture? And I'm like, well, one, you can't force anybody to connect to it, but, but you have to be able to provide them the opportunities to engage with right. it. And you have to actively be engaging with it yourself and not from an appropriative manner, but from a, a manner yeah. of appreciation. Yeah. And I think that yeah. that distinction is really important. Because people think, oh, I throw on like a hanbok or something from Korean culture. And it's like, okay, now I'm, yeah. it's like, I'm doing it now. Don't you want to do it too? And yeah. it's what I call the sort of the dragon and lantern kind of like mentality sure. over here. You take them to a couple of dance classes where they can wave a fan about and listen to kind of like cod Chinese music. And, and that's fine. That's their culture. And it, it's just, it's not, you know, and it takes an awful lot of work if you have no sort of background in that. So it's, you know, it's not, it's not just about the child. It's about you as a parent, yes. you know, and, and that's your investment. That's, that's your commitment. That's your unconditional support and love for that child is actually being able to have at least some of the answers or being able to show that child where to go if they want to take things further. But you have to do the groundwork first. You can't expect other people to do that and in this day and age there is no excuse really right and that's the thing and like especially for older adoptees or adoptees who came about you know like in the 50s 60s 70s i'll even go up to the 90s when i was adopted you know that was the rhetoric and this is why the industry is so harmful to adoptees specifically and by extension adoptive parents because they're told assimilation is the key to having a successful adoptive family which in reality, and now that we have a lot of academia and scholarship from adoptees themselves who have done this work, it's clear that that is not the case. And like yeah. that we, like no. you said, need to flip the script, reframe this narrative. So that way in the future, as adoptions continue to happen, because they are going to continue to happen in different ways, shapes and forms, they can be more informed. And that, and yeah. like you said, there is no excuse now for a prospective adoptive parent to not be doing that work. And if they are unwilling to do that work, then they shouldn't be adopting. They shouldn't Absolutely. be adopting. I mean, it's a tough, it's a tough gig to be a parent at the best of times, but to take on 
a child of difference. It is a, an, an entirely different thing, you know. Um, and I, I think it's it's underplayed. I think all the time in terms of you know sort of mm. it's a being ingenuous in some senses. It's a quick fix. You can choose the baby or the child that you want, right? And it's easier and quicker to do it if you go to certain countries. Right. Because you can do that. You can fill in the forms and it's much easier and it, it won't take as long. Um, and that is, you know, sort of, I mean, you know, sort of, it is, it is like going to a store and, and then saying, I want that child in that yeah. color um, with that. Thank you very much. I'll pay you that and off I go. Um, and that's, <laughs> right. that's, that's my family. It's literally, you know, they proved, literally but, had catalogs, know. like a JCPenney's or something, you know, and like you just flip yeah. through and you're like, yeah. and then that was when proxy adoptions were the norm and where you didn't have to go to the country of origin and yeah. learn, at least immerse yourself in the culture for even a week, two weeks, whatever it is. You know, you could just, yeah. like you said, it's a quick fix. I just like pick the person out. Here's my check. And all right, off we go to our new family and our new life. But then that's, that's, you know, sort of, it's framed within that. Eurocentric Western ideal, isn't it? Of yes. West is best and and what is good and superior. I mean, there is still the attitude which drives me nuts uh, of this kind of like pseudo Christian. We are saving the child. Yes. And my answer to that is from what? Right. If you want to save the child, then you invest in the country so that they have the systems and the wherewithal to look after their um orphaned or, or or children that that need to to be cared for because the natural parents for whatever reason can't so if you're that invested in wanting to help and save children then invest in the countries so that they can do it themselves you know exactly. this is not a pick and mix it, you know we are not objects we are human beings and that, and you know, so adoption is for life. It's you know, it's not something that you can just decide to kind of like forget about. Although you know, sort of some of the horrendous cases that you know you hear of of, of adoptees being returned because that right. they're found to be too problematic, or there were problems, or they have health problems which weren't disclosed when they adopted them, and they've just put them on flights and sent them back. Yeah. You know, which is horrific. It really is. And that's something I've been talking about a lot lately is, or over the past couple of years, actually, is that the reason that the narrative is what it is, is because the question that we're supposed to be asking ourselves is, why is anyone ever in a position to have to give up their child in the first place? And when we ask ourselves that question, we have to then acknowledge the systemic issues at play like poverty, classism, just generalized capitalism <laughs> that cause folks to be in the position that they have to be like, the best option is for me to give my child away. And that's a problem. And we don't want to do that because, again, we don't want to be accountable to those systemic All issues right. because we <laughs> live in a, in a society of comfort or the, uh, a society of privilege that most of us can be one or two steps removed and don't have to worry about any of those any of those problems any of those systemic issues it tends to be reframed and and this was something that was was said to me a lot um when i was very young well when i started being annoying and asking questions um <laughs> it was that you know sort of 
but your parents didn't want you. They just literally threw you away. Mm. Um, and obviously that, you know, sort of people do things for all sorts of different reasons, but I'm a firm believer that to make a decision like that, even if you do it um, half-heartedly and you do it quickly because you know um, that once you make a decision like that, you can't take it back. Right. The, the position that that human being has to be in or that family has to be in must be so extreme that, you know, sort of you must be so desperate to even consider something like that or you are coerced, deeply right. coerced into doing that. Um, and we don't want to think, you know, the West doesn't want to think about things like that, you know, no. sort of, because it's all love and light and, 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 you know, so if we're doing a good thing, we, they don't want to actually look at the dark underbelly of, of, of the reasons why adoption comes about, whether that's transracial, national or inter-country, you know, sort of, Many of the reasons, you know, for, for people giving up that, you know, for women giving up their children are deeply disturbing. And we still find it very difficult to kind of like take that on board and talk about it. And, and we need to, you know, we need to yeah. be talking about that. Well, again, it's like you, you holding up a mirror to yourself. And at the end of the day, the individual isn't necessarily responsible for all of the systemic issues, but you have to be able to recognize how you've played into this industry or the system mm -hmm. and what your part is in it. Because when you can, when you can see that reflection, then you can start to ask those harder questions because you're giving yourself the opportunity to recognize within yourself, the role that you play. And then by being self accountable, you can start to move a little bit more deeply into that conversation and have those tougher thoughts, those tougher conversations, that more difficult realization of, oh, there's something off here. There's something wrong here. Um, we're already 30 minutes into this conversation. And the whole, <laughs> the whole point of the, of the series is to address, you know, what piece is missing from the BIPOC adoptee experience. And I think we've covered a ton. So I want to ask you specifically what you feel like out of maybe anything that we've talked about, or if there's something different or something else that you'd like to add to what you feel like is missing from the BIPOC adoptee conversation that we really need to be talking about? For me, I think what there are two things that are missing is is the actual adoptee themselves mm. um, and being able to to actually voice their experience, their lived experience, um, and not to be you know sort of uh, gaslit or shat, shouted down. The second is, is, you know, sort of society as a whole, um, actually having the conversations that we've been talking about honestly mm. and openly, it's going to be difficult. Those types of conversations always are, but the willingness to actually have those is still not there. I don't think, um, either here or in the States, I don't, I don't think we are anywhere close to where I think we should be given the time that we're in now and what we know. Um, and I think that would help greatly to, to transform um, childcare. I think it would. Um, but you can't change that unless there is the willingness from the people who have uh, the clout, who actually have 
hold those positions, whether that be governmental uh, in terms of policy or whether that's in the major sort of, you know, adoption agencies. Um, mm. There needs to be transparency, honesty and accountability. And I think we are so short on all of those things. So how do those folks move closer to that? I feel like we've talked about it a little bit, and obviously it's child-centric. Like we have to start centering the adoptees themselves in these conversations. How else do these agencies, just society in general, as a whole, move closer to getting to where we need to be? I mean, I think it's, again, having open conversations, actually basically doing your homework and not relying on the half a dozen experts that you know but going out mm. and talking to people who actually have lived that, who are where those experiences are still raw. And mm. also from the industry that I'm involved in is is being prepared to kind of like stand up and call out the stereotypes and the tropes. You know, sure. like Joyride, yeah, whoop. Um, <laughs> for me... Look, it's half a dozen one and six of the other. It's great to see, you know, sort of Asian faces on screen, as it mm. should be. But beneath that is the old kind of like narratives being regurgitated and repackaged so it is palatable for the general market. And right. that belies, you know, sort of the seriousness of the experience and, and the lives of the of those people, you know, you can do something which is comedic and you can still push home and change that narrative. And unfortunately right. for me, that film doesn't do it and it should have done, which I think is a shame. Right. It's a missed opportunity. It's playing into all of those things that I'm sure, you, like me, the model minority, the adoptees mm. got to be grateful, you know, forever, you know, sort of beholden to the people that adopted them which is complete nonsense. We have to get away from from all of those things. Like, you know, sort of within, you know, sort of culture, we have to start seeing the reality in fiction. You know, right. that has to start representing and, and reflecting the reality of what it means to be a citizen who is um, transracially adopted, who has you know, sort of dual heritage or tri-heritage and what that means, um, particularly in this day and age, particularly post, you know, George Floyd and BLM. There are so mm. many things, good things that came out of that. And we now need to see those being placed in to the policies, to the government, to society, and how we as communities actually relate to one another. Right. Um, and And... That starts from actually honestly wanting to speak to people who have the expertise and the knowledge and not relying on academia. A hundred percent. I appreciate you bringing up Joyride. We've had many conversations about that film on this show and uh, in just <laughs> other spaces, particularly social media. And I agree that it was it was definitely a missed opportunity. And I also feel like the community itself is trying to latch onto it as an opportunity to really focus in on why it was a missed opportunity. And so you talked about, you know, particularly from your specific industry, film and television, that creative specific industry, how do folks within that, that sphere, how do they go about making sure they're addressing this, particularly when they tell adopting narratives? 
How do they? How how do we ensure that folks that are creating these projects that work in production, that are in the writers' rooms, that are in the directors' chairs? How do we make sure that we are accurately and appropriately telling stories like this? It's a long road. It's it's the same process that you do uh, that the black community has had to do that the British East Asian community mm. is now doing, which is you have to stick your head above the parapet and you have to start calling out this nonsense. And it's mm. unpopular, you know, and then you go through the phase of um, you start finding that uh, people are looking for consultants, cultural consultants and then transracial right. adopting consultants. Um, and that, for the most part until recently, it's just a, a tick, uh, you know, ticking a box exercise. They're sure. not really interested in people saying that this is this is not right. This will not is not correct. It doesn't chime with the experiences that we are aware of. Mm. It takes a lot of effort, and also you end up having to do the work. And right. then it's a question of finding the funding to get unpopular narratives because people don't know how to to market these things you know sort of what is it well it at the end of the day it's a story and if the story is good then it doesn't matter whether you're brown blue black purple with pink spots you'll go and watch it if it's done well if the production values are good and if the story is good then people will go and see it you know crazy rich asians you know sort of uh, farewell yeah. Point in case, you know, people will put buttons on seats. But then again, it's, you know, we have to target those that are in positions of power that have mm. hold on to the money who are, who commission things, who produce things. And that can be tough, you know. Right. And it's, you know, sort of a lot of the time there are sections within our own communities who just don't want to be reminded of the real stories sure. because it's much easier to bury your head in the sand and and just think everything's fine. Well, you know, we've just gone through a pandemic, you know, sort of, and there are many people within in the UK, and I'm sure it's possibly the same in the States from BC communities who who thought that they were okay and they were the first people thrown under the bus during the pandemic. Right. You know. And have we, and it's part of that thing for me, have we gotten to this stage as, you know, sort of citizens that we lack so much, so little knowledge of ourselves and we are so, um, so de-invested in what we are that we would throw ourselves under, that we want to be something that we are not, that we meant to be honouring white. We're not. Right. We should be. We need to learn to be proud of what we are, of where we come from, of who we are, and how we contribute to the societies that we are in, no less than anybody else. Um, and we have to be able to stand up for that. We have to buck the trend of an older generation, which I totally understand saying, keep your heads down, don't put attention to yourself, right. you know, just get on with it. We've gone past that stage now. We are who we are. We are here because of our ancestors, and that will always be the case, and that's something that we will always be proud of or should be proud of. But we exist in our own right, and we are who we are, and we need to not be afraid of, 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 of standing up and shouting out and calling nonsense out when it happens. 
whether that's internal, you know, sort of prejudice or external prejudice. We're asking for allies, so we have to do the same. We have to be right. as equally, you know, inspective um, and, and, you know, sort of critical of ourselves internally as we are of those external. You are preaching to the choir right there because that's what we need to hear. And you're absolutely 100% right. At the end of the day, we've not had the models to show us what it looks like to stand up for ourselves, particularly within the adoptee community. Like, again, a lot of us operate in like academic or scholarship spaces. It's a little bit more inaccessible. And we're slowly finding ourselves into these more public, visible facing areas, particularly with social media, where (laughs) people are now using, utilizing their voice and standing up and shouting and shouting against And at the end of the day, it is still difficult to push back because those people who sit in privilege and power who have all of the money are the ones who have the opportunity, will give you the opportunity to go. And they're like, yeah. hey, you need to tone it back. You need to scale back uh-huh. on the the rhetoric that you're sharing in order for you to come and have this opportunity. And some people are, are because of their circumstance or whatever their lived experience is, are going to be willing to jump ship that way and go because yeah. – this is how mm-hmm. I make it. This is how I get to that next level. And unfortunately, we have to, maybe not unfortunately, but we have to also have the folks who are willing to buck that and say, yeah. I don't want your money. I don't need your position. I need you to understand us as a community, understand yeah. this lived experience and start taking it seriously and validate that. And I think it's really, really difficult. It's very difficult to push against that, and particularly yeah. in the industry that I I work in, I I get why there is probably when it comes to you know sort of the blue tick uh, strata, they don't want to speak out because mm-hmm. they have gotten to that place of uh, renown and privilege because they have taken parts that I suspect they probably weren't happy to do in the past. But that's sure. given them the trajectory. And I'm not, you know, sort of, don't get me wrong, I, you can only make that decision for yourself. But there's a point right. at which I think you have to decide which side of the fence you are going to sort of put your mark on. Um, and I'm sort of gotten to the stage where I'm old enough now, hey, look, what, what else can happen to me? You know, I, I don't fear speaking out. The, the backlash that can come, particularly with social media, can be pretty extreme. And for younger people, that, that you know, sort of, I get it, that can be quite frightening, you know. But the more people that are willing to actually maybe not shout, but maybe just put a hand up, then that leads to a fist, then that leads to, you know, a full blown on, you know, sort of network crazy shouting out the window and, and encouraging everybody else to do that then the more we will highlight the things that need to be challenged and changed and the more people will see that they are not alone and there are other people that are willing to do that, that understand that, that, you know, it's never going to be a perfect world, but we can do what we can do to try and change that. And we can be part of the solution, not part of the problem, you know. A hundred percent. Um. I find the the thing with Joyride so interesting because I had some friends here who operate in the film and television industry as adoptees who one person in particular, she's like, I'm going to share. And she put on every one of her posts, please don't blacklist me. 
because she had an experience yeah. with this film that was completely different than what other people were talking about who were, who were she was not praising it as the portrayal of an adopted yeah. experience. And I feel like that's so like that's so hard for somebody to stand up and be like, I work here. This is what I want to do with my life. And I have to beg the the people in power to not shut me down and, and shut me out and shun me and blacklist me just so I can voice my opinion on what was yeah. what I feel like was done incorrectly with this film. And I think that's that I mean, that's bravery on another scale. Yeah. I think that we don't absolutely. recognize too often enough. And I think that, you know, sort of particularly in, in the UK, there was such a lack of um, representation of British East and Southeast Asian. Mm. But any time a face like this appears, good, bad or ill, it's like, yay, brilliant. Right. Um, and it's really difficult to actually say, well, yes, but however, content-wise, what, what, what does that mean? What, you right. know, the character that you see on your TV screen or on your, on your cinema screen, what, what, what is that actually saying to us as human beings, part, as part of the wider society? And, you know, what is it showing us culturally? More ten, Nine times out of ten, we are still the illegal immigrants, the people that are heavily accented. Or right. if we're not, we are the sidekick to the white protagonist. Right. The narrative is not our own. We don't have our own thought processes. We don't have our own storyline. We don't have our own concerns. Everything is an adjunct to the white hero, if you like. You know, um, and you, you say things like that, and then suddenly you are, you know, sort of you're being disrespectful to the actors that were in it. And it's like, well, I didn't say that. What I'm saying <laughs> is, why can't we look deeper at the content? Who wrote the damn script? Who produced right. it? You know, and we've got a plethora, well, I'd say a plethora, we've got a growing catalogue of really interesting documentaries particularly about East uh, Asian adoptees finding siblings, uh, you know, wanting to find out where they'd come from and looking yep. at the their horrific, you know, the the subterfuge, if you like, um, on getting those 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 children adopted. But we lack that in the fictional space, the dramatic space. Yes. And when you do get stuff like that, like over here there was a, a program called One Child, and on the premise of it, it, it's it's brilliant. But watching the program, it's very much from a Western lens, from a white lens of, yes, you know, this child was saved, et cetera, et cetera, went to a good life. And why would the hell would you want to to go and and, and look for your, your your you know sort of your birth mother? Yeah. And that just happens time and time again. Even when you get fictionalized, you know, sort of adoptees, you know, sort of in the big franchise, Loki. I mean, typical, the evil kind of nutty adopted brother. Right. And it, it's just, you know, sort of, you're either kind of like evil and kind of like mentally ill or you're saved, you have to be saved and things have to be done for you um, in order for you to progress, you know, sort yeah. of. Or, you know, sort of like line, the ad adaptation of that, that sort of, you know, sort of story was put very much, you know, sort of um, the mother as, as, as the victim and, and, and poor, poor thing, you know, she'd adopted this, 
these two children that were really, really uh, problematic. And it's like, hang on a minute, it should be about the children, (laughs) not about the white woman who's kind of like, you know, for whatever reason is having a bad day. It it should be about the children. And the fact that, you know, they should never have been adopted in, uh, he should never have been adopted in the first place. Exactly. You know, sort of, so it it kind of that, that maddens me. But then that's a narrative which is palatable. Palatable, um, right? And it makes people feel good, doesn't it? It a hundred percent. And the palatability, I think, is such an important thing to name because I think that's what we. I think a lot of us are realizing that all of the work, or most of the work, that's out there about the particular lived experiences of adoptees comes from academia and is uh, less palatable or digestible for uh, folks in the wider audience, which is why a fictional yeah. narrative is so important for us to be able to uh, really internalize these narratives for other people, for people to really understand uh, it. Because for whatever reason, they they can turn their brains off to a documentary and be like, well, that's just, they'll, they'll be, that's the outlier. You know, that's something that's just over so far afield. Like they only made this because it happened to this one person or this, these five people, whatever it is. They can uh-huh. justify it in their minds. With fictional narratives, uh-huh. for whatever reason, it makes something click with people. And they're like, oh, okay, uh-huh. there's something yeah. wrong here. And they're more likely, which is something that's been said of uh, of my work, and I uh, sort of did a, a wee social media post about this, is that initially I thought, um having gotten critiques back from several literary people who actually were male and white, middle class, um, sort of, oh, the characters are really dislikable. And I was thinking, oh, God, what have I done? And rereading what I've written, I came to the conclusion, it's not that they're dislikable. It's they portray a personality aside that they don't want to hear. Right. The adoptees are not supposed to be outspoken. They're not supposed to have these feelings. They're not supposed to be, you know, sort of, they're not supposed to question the wonderful life that they've been given. And that, you know, sort of mothers are not always the saints that we want them to be. Right. You know, it's a difficult position to be a mother. You know, particularly in the West, you put them up on a pedestal and as soon as, you know, sort of women say, oh, I don't want to have children, then they're demonized. You can't yep. say that because you you should be paternal. That's that's your whole raison d'etre, isn't it? Um, and that you know, sort of, not all mothers who adopt are the saints that we would like to think. Mm. Unfortunately, because we're dealing with human beings, there are a lot of adoptive mothers who are have narcissistic personalities. Um, you know, sort of, and it's something that we we have to grapple with, something that we have to talk about. And, yeah. and I think those aspects which appear in my work, they are then classified as, you know, sort of it's not that it's bad writing, oh, it's, it's characters that people wouldn't like, they don't want to see that on stage, or that you, you're, you're a very angry writer. And I'm thinking, no, I'm not, actually. I've not written it in capital letters. It's because <laughs> you, you, it makes you feel uncomfortable. Right. That's what it does. It makes you feel uncomfortable because you've been told that, all adoptees are subservient. They're always grateful. They're forever beholden. They will always do what the parents want them to do, even when they're adults. Right. Which is not the case. A hundred percent. We are not blank sheets of paper, you know, that you can write upon. No exactly. matter how young you are when you're adopted, you are not that. 
no child, what, whatever, whatever, wherever they come from, is a blank sheet of paper. Yeah, and I it's think like, it's, it's like it's, we we have lives that happen prior to our adoptions. Even if you were adopted yes. three months, you still have three yeah. months of history. And not only that, you have an entire history biologically that extends backwards that you will now have no, no access to because that Absolutely, gets wiped yeah. away. And yeah. at the end of the day, it's still there. But for whatever reason, yeah. for many reasons, we are not allowed to have that because they want us to be the blank slate because we, they, yeah. we are now imprinted upon as in westernized ways as yeah. American or as, as, as British or how, wherever you end up. Whatever. Yeah. And, and they want us to remain perpetually children. Yes. And they treat yes. us perpetually like children. So you are told you don't know what you're talking about or you're mentally ill for actually basically saying something right. that is anti-adoption. Well, and again, these in these in general society, they know folks who are like the, the the common response is, well, my brother's uncle's nephew is adopted, and they're just yeah. fine. They don't yeah. have any of these problems that you're that you're talking about. And it's like, well, one, why are you talking for them? And two, I would love to talk to that person just to hear about their experience because it might be yeah, wildly yeah. different than what you think it is really? and what you're telling me yeah. that it is. I mean, I think it, uh, you know, sort of, it, it's that thing that we were talking about earlier that there isn't. You know, there is no one story that fits every single yes. transracial adoptee or, or, or adopted person. It, we are all unique and our experiences are framed by so many things. But I think there is a common denominator for most adoptive people that I've come across, and that is the thing that is missing. Um, mm. And it is... Maybe a thing that you can never put a finger on for transracial adoptees. It is the lack of that continuance or understanding of your heritage and your culture, that that gap in your sort of, you know, um, DNA of identity. Uh, for other adoptees, it is always possibly most common the sense of, of not belonging or being different, even if they look the same. It's that hundred percent that discomfort, isn't it? Yes. Knowing inside that there is something that is slightly off. Yeah, you know. Um, I th I mean so, I think you've just nailed the missing piece of ever of this entire conversation forever. <laughs> is that <laughs> I like I like the way you, you you described it the lack of continuance or understanding of your history, uh -huh. your culture, your lineage. Like a hundred percent, we all because that is the one thing that really we all share. Because, like you said, no one story can encapsulate everybody's experience. No. Even if you're adopted to the same family, you are like my my younger sister, also adopted from Korea, not biologically related to me. We grew up in the same household, a year and a half apart. Like wildly different experiences, wildly yeah. different relationships with right. adoption and our our coming to consciousness moments. And people want to generalize that. Because they don't know about, they don't want to talk about what we lost in the process. And if we start to address that, yeah. we can we can gain that greater understanding, not only as adoptees ourselves, but for general society, for people outside uh -huh. of this community to really understand yeah. what it is. And yeah. like that piece right there is something that I share with my friends who are not adopted. And the first thing they say is, oh yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. And it's oh. because people get... Like, oh, I do have, I can look back at my history. I can access this if I want to. 
you know, and my parents can tell me like they don't just have the story of, well, you were given away because they couldn't take care of you or you were just thrown on the side of the street uh-huh. or you're left at the fire station or whatever it is like we we don't have that. And they have that. And when they realize, oh, other people don't have that. I didn't realize it crystallizes for them. Oh, there's something uh-huh. off here. We are the Frankensteins, aren't we? We are mm. cultural Frankensteins. We we operate in that no man's land between two very distinct cultures. Um, yeah. And, you know, sort of, I use that phrase because I think it's apt in, in terms of the monster is all of the things that you shouldn't do, that you right. should, that you may want to do, but you shouldn't do. And I think... Adoption, translational adoption, is very much a Frankenstein. It's a great ideal, but the actual practicalities of doing it, the actual knitting together of things that don't go together, is mm. possibly just because you can do it, maybe you shouldn't. You know, um, and and we are left in that no man's land between two two identities, um, and it takes a long. You know, it took me over half a century to to come to terms with that and I am now incredibly comfortable in who I am and more importantly I think it is who I am not sure and that makes mm. other people really uncomfortable mm. because you know sort of th- they don't like that they don't but that's their problem not mine so, exactly you know. exactly not our problem it's their problem. I can see why Absolutely. you work in the area that you work in because you paint these really vivid pictures. You use incredible metaphors. And I'm out here just like, okay, I need to incorporate a lot of this language into the way I talk about <laughs> adoption. I think this is beautiful. And Lucy, I really appreciate we're already in an hour here. It feels like we've only been oh, talking well. for 20 minutes. We've covered so many things. Mm-hmm. And you've given us such an education, not only myself, but the audience listening right now about a ton of different things. And, you know, we actually even did get down to this common denominator, that key missing piece for adoptees themselves. And I think it's really important for us to be able to learn from folks like you who have a unique, not only lived experience, but a unique perspective on the experience of what it means to be adopted and the way that you're able to talk and frame these things, these concepts, these ideas of how we have that conversation and what we need to do to move forward is so, so important. And again, when we do this, this is labor for us to educate other people, uh-huh. to even have this conversation, to go through, to share this knowledge so people can learn. Is there anyone right now that you're learning from, anybody that's inspiring you at the moment when it comes to shifting, reframing, thinking differently, developing new perspectives on this conversation or others? I've just finished reading uh, Michael Holding's book, um, why we kneel, how we rise. Um, and I think it something that pertains not just to people, people of, of black Afro-Caribbean um, descent, but to anybody who I think has been marginalized. Um, mm. And I think what, what is lacking both for, it, particularly in the UK, um, in the sort of transracial adoptee community and also in the British East Asian community is that ability to kind of go beyond just the immediacy of our own sort of uh, particular challenges, but also looking at our challenges in 
in tandem with the challenges of other people from minorities mm. um, and and uh, you know sort of um, disenfranchised groups within society, um, and learning lessons from that, and knowing that collaboration and allyship doesn't mean that you lose that sense of who you are and that uniqueness, but that actually being able to join hands. The greater the group, the more the power you have, you know, sort of, and, and actually taking, you know, um, a leaf out of, you know, sort of the civil rights movement and, and looking at the variety of people that were central to that movement, not just people um, of, of black heritage, but people of Asian heritage as well. And it's amazing that, uh, particularly over here in the UK, we don't, we are not sort of immediately privy to that 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 history and we should mm. and I think that's a leaf out of you know sort of uh your country's book this is where we should be heading for this is this is our power this is our strength diversity uh is our strength that is you know and and from that comes unity I think I, I truly mm. hope and believe I absolutely love that could not agree more we, at the end of the day, as an adopting community, like now we have to recognize ourselves and our own power. And then when we realize that, find our community, like you said, we have to be able to see and recognize that we are just part of a larger fabric of community okay. and people that at the end of the day, we all need to move together in solidarity in tandem to be able to reach what we want to reach, which at the end of the day mm -hmm. is, is freedom, true, true freedom and liberation. Yeah. For each of us. Fair. And that's a big lofty goal that America likes to hoist up on a flag and say, oh, we were already here. When at the end of the day, it's you can look out on the street and see that that's just not true. I mean, I think it was uh, Obama who said uh, building um, roads to, to nowhere and monuments of nothingness. And we can actually flip. If we yes. join hands, we can actually be the people that build roads to somewhere and build monuments that mean something to everybody. And I think Absolutely. that's, a, you know, an absolute goal and, and ideal. And I think it will come from, I hopefully, the generations that are coming through now. I think so, too. I'm really inspired by a lot of young people right now who oh. I actually just met with an adoptee yesterday who is 20. And is having mm -hmm. a lot of these conversations already. And I'm like, that's great because I know too mm -hmm. many people who are like us or older who come to these realizations, these come to consciousness moments much later in their lives. Yeah. And it's like we are not only building for ourselves, we're building on the foundations of other adoptees who have come before yeah. us. So that way, the younger adoptees who come after us can continue to build vertically instead of laterally. Mm -hmm. So we can keep yeah. moving forward. It's about holding doors open, isn't it? And, yes. and allowing people to walk through without mm. and not letting them slam closed. Exactly. And, and we have to do uh, we have to do that and, and ensure that that continues. Exactly. Lucy, you have been an absolutely incredible guest. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us here today. I can't wait to continue to have conversations with you because I feel like I learned a lot from you and I would love to learn more about your specific story and learn more about how you got into filmmaking and how all of that is tied into all of this, even though we've talked about a little bit of that here. Um, but as we come to a close on this particular conversation, last question for you, how do we, how does our audience here support you specifically? 
Uh, well, you can follow me on social media. Um, I'm I'm not on um, X, formerly known as Twitter. I am on Threads, <laughs> um, which okay. is uh, just Lucy Sheen, and I'm also on Insta. So please um, drop by and say hi. And if I've got time, if I'm free, I will obviously say hi and follow you back. So yeah, amazing. Well, we will have all of your socials, every way that we can connect with you down here in the show notes. We'll also have Michael's book, Why We Kneel, How We Rise, down, linked down here in the show notes as well for anybody who wants to pick that up. Um, again, thank you so much for coming on, for giving me the privilege and honor of your time, your story, your expertise, your knowledge over this last hour. Like I said before we hopped on air, these <laughs> conversations are usually 30 to 40, but they've been going a little bit longer for the series. This is uh, 100% indicative of that because there's so much to this conversation that we have to be talking about uh-huh. and that we should be. And so I really, Absolutely. really appreciate you giving us everything that you've given us in this conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. For everyone else, again, find the links to everything that we've talked about here in the show notes. If you want to connect with us directly, you can do so on Instagram at Conversation Pod Piece. If you do feel inclined to leave a rating or review on whatever you're listening or watching this on, we would greatly appreciate that. And if you are interested in supporting the show in the future in any way, feel free to hop in our DMs or visit our website, ConversationPeacePod.com. Until next time, I'm Patrick Armstrong, and this has been Conversation Peace. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Lucy.